Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material from all of our adapted film discussions. Purchasing through our links support the show at no extra cost to you. In Season 12, the focus was big franchises and series. We covered both Paddington films, adapted from the beloved children's book character created by Michael Bond. Oh, I love those films so much. Hugh Grant is perfect. For our Pitch Perfect series, the first film was adapted from Mickey Rapkin's nonfiction book about collegiate acapella competitions. It's like a short story of my life, literally. I lived college acapella. Sing it, brother. I lived college acapella. <laughs> I didn't mean literally. <laughs> You know who you're talking to, right? The Twilight Saga dominated the season with five films adapted from Stephanie Meyer's vampire romance novels, Twilight, New Moon, Eclipse, and the two Breaking Dawn parts. Dominated with awkward romance and nonsense logic is more like it. <laughs> that too. Another Thin Man brought us back to Dashiell Hammett's only Thin Man sequel based on other Hammett material, The Farewell Murder, that wasn't just based on the characters from the first film. We talked about Train Spotting and its sequel, T2 Train Spotting, adapted from Irvine Welsh's novels. Ugh, I hate the sequel's name. I do too. And the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy, adapted from J.R.R. Tolkien's epic fantasy series. Love these. Extended editions all the way, baby. Plus, all the Mission Impossible films based on the 1960s TV series. And we've still got at least one more to go. Members got to hear us chat about The Hustler and The Color of Money, adapted from Walter Tevis's books. Get all of these books and more at our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. Start your next read from the movies we've covered at thenextreel.com slash originals. 
Taking my sweet time Feels right Living in the moment yeah. Cause I know where I'm going I'm taking my sweet time It's time I'm Pete Wright And I'm Andy Nelson Welcome to the next reel When the movie ends Our conversation begins Pitch Perfect is over. Like my dad always said, if you're not here to win, get the hell out of Kuwait. There will be no more wasting time with school or boyfriends. Can I trust you will add your own cardio? Yeah, no, don't put me down for cardio. What are you doing? Horizontal running. Are you guys getting ready for the riff-off? What's a riff-off? Shorty, get down, good lord. Strictly bitch, you don't play around. Cover much ground. Got game by the pack. Oh, I like the way you work. Oh, no diggity. I got a bag. Oh, oh, Let's remix this business. I like the what boring estrogen filled set have you prepared for us? Hey, Amy! I just ain't shot! You guys are gonna get pitch slapped so hard, your man boobs are gonna concave. I have a feeling we should kiss. I sometimes have a feeling I can do crystal mess, but then I think, mm, better not. Pete. Hi, Andy. This is going to be a big series, and we just need to get all of this out of the way right now before we begin. What is that? You have an effusive love and passion for acapella, perhaps because you had some experience doing this. So I think we need to start setting the stage. For this series. Oh my God. Your history. I don't even know where to begin. With acapella. Oh God. I was Ben Platt. Well, I was let, a young Ben here. Platt. Let's... <laughs> <laughs> but you have to sing it all. You have to sing <laughs> all Okay. What do you want to know? When I was 17. <laughs> what do you want to know? All right. So first question. What was the name of the acapella group you were in? Well, there are a couple. So the, when I started, I, I started at Drew University, which is in Madison, New Jersey, and my opening weekend was exactly the experience that they have that in the movie where uh, all the freshmen in freshman orientation are sitting in this big auditorium and the college acapella group shows up and comes on, on stage. And in this case, in the movie, it's the Troublemakers. In uh, my case, it was 36 Madison Avenue. Um, and they got up and they just blew us away. And I knew right then, this is what I have to do. Is that so weird? Like, it's so weird. And so I auditioned and I, I made it. I was uh, one of two that made it into the auditions. And we had, a, we didn't have to do any uh, sacrifices drinking the blood of those who become have come before us. Um, but, uh, we, it, it became my fraternity. Like I didn't have to pledge Greek or anything because I just, that was who I was. So I, I was with them for two years and then I transferred to university of Colorado where I joined, um, I actually formed, uh, with a couple of other guys, uh, university of Colorado's in the buff, which is a weirdly ridiculous and yet perfect name for university of Colorado acapella group. Well, and we should just say that's because the the mascot is the buffalo. And we were cheeky, and we thought. And so the icon, one of the f- other uh, co-founders, his his brother's an artist, and he drew our logo, which was a buffalo that has been shaved, standing on its hind legs, crossing its you know 
Crossing its junk. Crossing its privates. Yes. Crossing the Buffalo privates. Yeah. So I I was with that and uh, I was within the buff. And that's when we started um, competing. Uh, when I was with Madison Avenue, that's an East Coast group. And so I was singing with um, Vassar College and Tufts and um, uh, Boston University. And like we were touring all over. We toured down to um, down to Washington, D.C. and up into Rhode Island. And we we like did they, they have these acapella like regional universities have like shared stage shows. And so we do these big acapella events and and, um, you know, schools would come join us for a big concert. Ours was called Acapalooza, or no, the first that was that was at Colorado. Ours at, at Drew was Jam Festo Rama because that's <laughs> what you do, and it ran for many many years. And so that that's really fun. And so like these groups that are in this movie, like the uh, UVA Hullabaloo's, like we were on stage with them, and the Beelzebubs, which we'll talk about. Um, like we were, we shared a stage with them, and uh, we know those guys. And so the people behind the music of this movie, like I. I know these guys. And you know, along the way, at University of Colorado, I actually was one of the finalists for the Best of College Acapella comedy album for m- our skit, Master Pete's Theater, where I read a <laughs> mashup of hard rock and, and hip hop lyrics in dramatic poetry style backed by a trio doing classical music. And um, it it was hugely popular at the Boca competition. but it was not a it was like a solo gig and they so they dismissed it because it was most of the group is sitting down and watching it so that was that was a bummer but uh, almost there and the guy who actually gave me the black ball was a guy named Deke Sharon who is the arranger and producer of the music behind this movie so Deke Sharon and I go way way back um so Anyway, so that was it. So two groups over a number of years, um, still very much in in touch with the uh, uh, with the uh, in the buff guys and the 36 Madison Avenue guys. I've been to two reunions with them. Notable alumni after right after I left, James Vanderbeek of Dawson's Creek fame actually joined 36 Madison Avenue. And the word is he wasn't very nice. And nobody likes him to come to reunions. So, <laughs> so he did not do well <laughs> in the group. Oh, my gosh. That's so, funny. I don't know. Did I just vomit too much there? What else do you want to know? No, that's that's great. Okay. So a few questions about the world of acapella just to help. I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. I, I think you're right. Because, I mean, when I uh, started college, uh, I mean, we met at University of Colorado in Boulder. Um, but I was there from freshman on, and and you had started uh, the other place. So you would have known the University of Colorado buffoons. They were old. The, yeah, the buffoons, certainly. Uh, but this is my question for you. In this film, we have the troublemakers. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see the, um, well, what is it, the tone hangers? That's the old. Well, the, the tone hangers, they're, yeah, they're graduated. They're, they're, they're the graduated singing. ones. Yeah. But I'm just saying, we see yep, them. We see them. Um, and I'm trying to remember what are some of the other. Ha- yeah, the high notes. The high notes. There's obviously the the Bellas. Uh, There were a few other groups. And then there was the group. I can't remember the name of the group that always sings Madonna. Uh, Why can't I remember their name? I love them. Um, No, I can't remember their name. But that was another group that that really principally sings Madonna songs. That was a co-ed group. So we have the the single gendered groups, the the Bellas, the female group, the uh, troublemakers of the men's group. The mixed group is the Madonna group. And then the high group is also a mixed group. So 
And that's that's very much the culture of of acapella at the time, like until pretty recently, um, there were single gendered groups and co-ed groups. And now, you know, we're seeing more fluidity across groups. So, yeah, yeah, it's all good. Uh, Yeah. Harmonics, high notes, sacapellas. I mean, there's all these cute names. And, you know, you were in the buff. There was the buffoons. Mm -hmm. And I guess this is my first question for you. (laughs) Is is it becoming like just a just a standard thing for acapella groups, college acapella groups to come up with incredibly cheeky names? I mean, they don't all have them, but certainly like the treble makers, you know, you get stuff like that. And I'm like, this is totally like college acapella. I, I mean, I feel because I, I know there was a point even at the University of Colorado where it was like an all campus, um, you know, acapella concert where all the different acapella groups came together. And there were, I don't know, five or six different groups that performed. And they I felt like they all had some sort of cheeky name. And I just feel like it is such a uh, such a thing that they do. And I, I find that it's very funny that it is such a. Uh, such an acapella thing. Uh, do you feel like that is pretty standard? Like, are there any names that stand out to you as like, that is one of the, the great names in the world no, of acapella? No, no, there are. Well, so no, the, the reason is, I think that you, you have to understand that when these groups are formed, they're formed by people who are 18 to 20 years old, like 21 <laughs> years old. They're not like brilliant branding agents at this point. Like all these groups who have been around for decades and decades, their name is the legacy part, right, of the of the experience. And they were children when they came up with those names. So most of those names are names of regret that they <laughs> they formed the names and they formed the group. And then four years later, they're like, why the hell did we do this? These are this is really dumb. And so it's you know, I think we we can joke about it, but we just have to remember who was coming up with this stuff like these groups. We're going to talk more about the Tufts Beelzebub's. Um, The female group at Tufts is the the Jackson Jills, the Jacks and Jills, Jackson Jills. Like, I mean, the play (laughs) on words is kind of fun, but come on, like it's uh, like they're just they're not great. And um these names now that these groups, thanks to, you know, Internet, have become bigger shows like the sing off movies and series like Pitch Perfect, like more and more of these groups are getting are of, of like big renown, like they're of great renown and, and in uh, across musical circles. And now they have to live with these names that are dumb. So, well, OK, yeah. Well, and, you know, I mean, like Ben Folds did a whole album where yeah. he performed a bunch of songs with acapella groups. Right. And what's that? What's that acapella group that I love so much that has the uh, they, they do the Christmas song with uh, Straight where no it Chaser? breaks into Toto's Africa? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> when that when, the, when it turns into that, it just it cracks me up. See, Straight No Chaser was a, was a college group that they're the tone hangers of college acapella. Like they were a college group and they just decided let's not stop being an acapella group. And mm. so they're still an acapella group, which is great. Like, that's awesome. Um the legendary groups like Pentatonics, um, the Pentatonics was they were high school kids and they just skipped the college scene and became a bigger group. So Pentatonics, like you look at their name, I think their name has more brand appeal than most of the college groups um, because. Uh, well, it was more. Know, it was named it's, more it's, after the number of them. Than yeah, it's named after the number of them, anything. and it's named with the intention to mass market their acapella, you know? So I, I think that's important to note. Yeah. So that's terrible. So, 
So here's another question for you. Uh, is I don't know, you know, okay, I, I, what do you call it? Like when you mash up, like you do these mashups of songs yeah. where they kind of two songs or multiple songs kind of blending together. Is this something that started in the world of acapella? Because I know it was popular like in Glee and stuff, but I was like, I, I feel like... I don't know. I feel like it's something I generally hear in acapella, but then also that. And so like, cause they do it plenty of times in this, uh, in this film. And I don't, I don't mean like, you know, there's that point where they're doing the, the, the sing off where like one group sings and then another tries to cut in. It's right. not that That's it's the like riff when off. one person, right. yeah, the riff off where one person singing or a group is singing, but then they all, they start singing another song layered over, over the top of it. Yeah. That is, um, I, it's really hard to say when that like, it happened because, you know, DJs have been doing that for generations, right? I mean, it's been around a long time. Uh, the, um, I, I think the thing about acapella mashups is, is borrowing that sort of thing from the DJ culture and putting it into, into acapella. And that is largely thanks to the album, I think, Foster Street released in 1991, produced and music directed by Deke Sharon, who was a member of the Tufts Beelzebubs at the time. It is a Tufts uh, album. And they did uh, Comfortably Numb Brain Damage uh, mashup, and it's extraordinary. That album, in fact, it, you know, you can find it. You can't find it, I don't think, anywhere other than bubs.com anymore. Right? You can't find it on, um, on uh, like, Apple Music. I don't think it's on Spotify. But you can listen to it on their website, and you can hear that album is largely credited for the modern acapella sound and and so you look at what what this movie i think arguably wouldn't exist as it is without foster street produced by deke sharon who produced this music like this is this is the that movie is the transformation between uh the sign and you know, everything else that comes later in this movie. It is the cultural sort of breaking point that says we can do cooler things with our mouths than what we have been doing. And that that was all Foster Street. Like, that's what gave everybody ideas. And so that's when I uh, start. I mean, that album came out and boom, we were starting an acapella group. And so it really defined the music that we started doing, too. Because acapella, I mean, I like because even like the world of like beatboxing and stuff like, I mean, I, I, I don't know the history of acapella, but I certainly feel like there was the barbershop quartet. Like and that kind of tone, that set kind of a stage of what acapella could do, like having multiple voices just kind of singing in harmony together. Um, I mean, obviously there's choirs well, yeah, and all that sort of church thing. and Latin yeah, and but, chant and that stuff. But like, yeah, but once you get into kind of like the pop and the performance and stuff like that, these specific things, um, like well, I don't, I, I don't a remember lot of Motown. Like there is a lot of of Motown. These wonderful, just sort of um, like. Uh, uh, pre, kind of R&B, pre-R&B, like street singing, you know? Billy Joel was a huge fan of it, right? This was like the that sort of R&B, like street corner stuff that wasn't barbershop, right? It was definitely, it definitely had its own vibe. And that, that I think, is is even more of a, a sort of press, uh, predecessor to, to modern acapella. And then, but, but like, when did like the beatboxing, cause that seemed to be something that, um, like, I don't remember hearing, I guess when I think of acapella groups, like back in my high school and younger days, I, I don't feel like there was much of that. I feel like it's something that started coming probably, I don't know, as a hip hop thing that, that kind of led into that. Yeah, it was in the nineties. Yeah. Um, and, and that again is Foster Street. Like Foster Street is the first one that had, uh, 
had songs with dedicated vocal percussionists, right? Like where you said, okay, this song, you're not making notes, you're making mouth sounds and in some cases body sounds, right? So um, that's, yeah, I mean, that's, um, that's it. Yeah, and you look at stuff like Michael Winslow and Police Academy, and I suppose you could say there's a little bit of the start with that, yeah. like the sounds you can make with your mouth and right. everything. Right. Yeah. Now just do it in meter, right? Like, yeah, and, right, right. and you can you can accompany. So exactly. So all of this, I guess, is just setting the stage for this because the, this takes place, you know, present day 2012. So acapella had been a thing for a while, long time on campuses, and so by the time. Uh, Becca arrives at this college, uh, much to her chagrin, and she goes, you know, through the kind of the activity fair and everything, which, yes, is very much a college sort of thing. All of those tables and everything. Boy, I remember walking through um, the student center and just seeing all those tables those first couple weeks of, of school. And, um, yeah, everybody is pitching you, trying to get you to join whatever it is, fraternities, choirs, sports, you name it. They're all there. I don't want to make this I don't want to make this all about me. We will talk about the movie, but I just have to say like that reflection right there when when these two characters are standing behind this table pitching people to join their acapella group after everyone else has graduated. Right. So they're down to two people is exactly my experience. I'm walking down <laughs> the loggia and there are two guys who want to start an acapella group and have no idea how to do it. And they say, hey. Do you sing like they don't know me? They just managed to catch eye contact. And that's how this group was born, because I was the only one who had any acapella experience. And so the three of us got together and created this group. But that's exactly how it happened. Like, I that's why I watched this movie and so much of it, it they got right. It's over glamorized. But so much of this movie is accurate. And it starts with that pitch. So I, I think that's really fun. Well, and I think that comes because it come. It's the whole thing is largely based off of two things. It's uh, Mickey Rapskin's uh, nonfiction book, Pitch Perfect: The Quest for Collegiate Acapella Glory, which followed. Uh, I'm going to forget the the, the schools that he followed. The Hullabaloo's. Yeah, the Tufts. Tufts. Yeah, Tufts. Yeah. Beelzebubs, which they pull for the troublemakers. Uh, University of Oregon, Davici, which Davici. was an inspiration for the Bella Davici. Mm-hmm. Really? D-I-V-I-S-I? We, uh, no, that's just the way it's, uh, no, you're right. I think it is Divisi. They, um, actually, we interviewed one of the founding members of Divisi on our old show, Acoustic Conversations. She's still um, a musician here in uh, Portland, and she's delightful. So, yeah, they're they're really, really great. That's awesome. Yeah. And then the University of Virginia Hullabahoos. Hullabahoos. Hullabahoos, which they also perform in the film. Mm-hmm. I think in one of the they have a, the, they're wearing the Technicolor dream coats <laughs> in the oh, uh, right yeah that's those right, are right, all right. The, the 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 hubs. So the book was all about like all of the singing and the people involved and partying and rivalries and all of that sort of stuff. And then also the director, um, you know, Jason Moore had come from the world of theater and kind of had this background. And so some of it was kind of based on his experience with kind of you know that whole journey into college and kind of like the beginning of everything. So between those two things, I think there's kind of a, a an interesting uh, kind of setup for what we're going to do. And this is this time when acapella is doing a lot of stuff and these competitions are around and, um, you know, these, these different groups see it as an opportunity to uh, perform and, uh, you know, make a name for themselves and 
Um, so it's, I, I love the setup for it. I think that it works very well creating this world that feels very lived in because of those, uh, those foundations. Yeah. And I think the other thing that it nails this movie is the, the tension that exists between the people who love acapella and think that it's actually cool. And the people who are outside of acapella and think that acapella people are dorks. Like there, there is a, a real, like palpable tension between those two things where acapella, like the acapella culture is a thing that is cringeworthy to those who think it's cringeworthy and a thing that is like identity defining to those who live inside of it. And I think this movie just nails that. Like it nails the, like sort of when you watch it from the outside, like why do these people feel so strongly? Why does this, this woman feel so strongly that the tension drives her to projectile vomit on stage like that kind of tension is is i think they i think they get it just right although the 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 side of the story that is people who are outside of it who look at everybody like dorks it's pretty minor like that is a very small part of this mostly it's about the people in it and who love it uh the only really the only person that we get outside of it is becca herself who absolutely does not want to be a part of this thing and really only kind of decides to become a part of it because um you know her father and kind of this deal with him and everything that's her call her call to the to to you know to action right is to she does it regretfully and then eventually right participate yeah participate in a group of some sort show him that uh you are going to try and if you don't like it then you can leave go to la and work at being a uh, a producer a music producer. Um, so that's what she does. And that's kind of, but that is largely, I mean, is there some other person that I'm forgetting? I, Cause I feel like that's the only real eye, the only entry point we have outside of the world of acapella. I think you're right. But I think the, there's the other piece of it is just the way they portray these characters, putting you, the audience member in a position to have that feeling too, right? The, when you see the trebles singing whip it, in that sort of rush week environment, right? They like they're horrible. Like they sound great. They sound amazing, but they they're performatively like so aggro and bumper is awful. And yet they love what they're doing. They feel very strongly that what they're doing is cool. Yet at that point, because we're in that position of having just heard Becca describing this as not cool, we're looking at these guys, or I think that I think I maybe have those reversed. But anyway, we're in a position of looking at these guys thinking, why is that cool as an audience? Like, they have to make acapella cool for us as an audience member. And I think that's that I think is more what I'm referring to. Like, there's that transition that we make when we get to realize that acapella is really, really like there's an expertise to it. And it's cool to watch and listen to. Right. And that's I I think that's a good point, like that. She is she is the entry point. She is our audience surrogate. We're out here going, why is this cool at all? And through her eyes, then we're able to see, oh, they're actually doing some cool stuff. And they're able to, you know, do these riff offs and all sorts of stuff that uh, that is pretty neat. So. Yeah, so that that works. That works well. Um, So let's uh, so Becca, I mean, what do you think of kind of this journey that this character takes? I mean, she's, you know, wants to be a music producer, really hates the fact that she's here. She's only here at this specific school at Barden because 
her dad is a professor here. Yeah, she gets a free ride. Right. And so she's here, even though she wants to move to L.A. It, I mean, I, it's, I feel like this movie is so full of tropes. And here's one of them. The uh, <laughs> the the parent who doesn't uh, buy into the child's dreams and yeah. wants them to get a real education before making any decisions. I mean, did you connect with dad? I I did. Oh sure, yeah. No, I yeah. I mean, just because it's a trope, I mean, doesn't the, mean I, it's, it's, I, we probably connect because yeah. it's a trope. You yeah, know, it's exactly. It's, it's like we're much. wired to to connect that way. I I so to to Becca, uh, I love Becca. I think Anna Kendrick is the perfect casting choice for this because uh, and and uh, apparently it was I, I think um, Elizabeth Banks and Jason Moore they were they saw her and up in the air and just like really connected with her there as did we. She is delightful. Uh, there is a certain like awesome fiery physicality to her and yet she just she's a diminutive person and i think that that conflict is really great because it means that when she's in positions of conflict with the rest of the group or with um you know with uh, uh anna camp um aubrey in in their early rehearsals uh, it's easy to see her back down but it also really fun to see her later step up and take the role of of leadership and and just sort of be won over by the camaraderie of the group you know, I, I love you. Awesome nerds is it's really a great transition for her, right? To realize that it's not really just about the music, but she's got some friends here that it developed accidentally, and I think Anna Kendrick just really pulls that off. Yeah, she does. I think that's uh, a big part of what she delivers here. And yes, I mean, you know, it's it's her character journey that we're going through of being on the outside, looking at all of these people as nerds, as people doing this silly thing that she wants no part of, uh, because she's a serious person who wants to just produce music, right? only to not only join and connect with the group, but also find this relationship that she's able to have with the, uh, you know, between the two people who are kind of heading it, Aubrey and Chloe, become the person who is able to help this group move past this this stagnance that they're yeah. mired in into something that is new and, and different and obviously as we get to the end of the film and, and it should come as no surprise but they end up uh winning at the icca uh finals yes and uh, let me just put just a bookmark here that the setup of her wanting to produce music is actually not paid off in this movie, but it is paid off in Pitch Perfect 2. And I really like that. There's a lot I don't like about Pitch Perfect 2, and even more I don't like about Pitch Perfect 3. But I really like the fact that they that they paid off her professional aspiration in Pitch Perfect 2 the way they did. So we're going to talk about that next week. Um, uh, but it, that setup starts here. I'm not sure I've actually seen Pitch Perfect 2 or 3, actually. <laughs> oh, Andy. Like, I'm thinking about this. I'm like, have I seen? I don't think I have. I think I saw this one, and then I don't think I ended up seeing either of the others. So this will be, for me, uh, you know, a, a new experience. So I'm looking forward to it. So looking uh, forward to oh, discussing wow. it when we get, when we pull that pin out. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe you agreed to this series. <laughs> <laughs> well i really liked the first movie i thought it was fun yeah good so well, and what i can yeah. say is there is still great music 
all the way out, all the way to the end. Of, uh, I have of three. the, I actually yeah. have the soundtracks for all three. Yeah, they're all very good. Yeah. Yeah. I enjoy. Okay. And this is something like that. I mean, I, I loved, you know, when you were performing a cappella in college, I enjoyed it then. I enjoy, you know, all these different acapella albums. Um, I love, uh, you know, the, the films, what they do here, like the, the glee, like all of those sorts of soundtracks. Uh, I really enjoy kind of that blend of music and what people are doing there. So yeah, they're doing okay. Good. They're doing good work. Well, this. Get, get ready. It's a fun <laughs> ride. Here we go. Um, so, okay. Scott, we got to, so we talk about Becca. We, we need to pivot to Skylar Aston uh, as, Jesse, can we? Because they're, they're the romantic duo, right? They're in this movie. They're set up as our couple. Yes. What do you think, of Skyler? I, I like him. I he's an actor. I had only, I think, I had only seen him in Hamlet too, which I absolutely love. One of <laughs> that's, your favorites. Uh, Why haven't we done that on that, this show? I don't know. I've tried. I wanted to do a teacher series years ago, and we never quite got around to it. But that I, I like that movie cracks me up to no end. Um, I guess I saw him in Wreck-It Ralph, but I, he's not somebody like, you know, you, you don't call out, you know, uh, Skylar Aston because he was a voice in uh, Wreck-It Ralph, you know. Right. Um, so, yeah, I, I haven't seen anything else that he's been in other than Hamlet 2, but I, I enjoy him as a performer. I think that he's great in the role he'll, here. I think he's uh, he, you know, very much has that uh, college energy and brings it like right when we first meet him, like randomly singing at Becca out of the car door as they're standing there. You know, it's, I mean, it, it kind of like that's the sort of vibe that college is full of. Like you every every corner you pass or you, that you go around, there's another situation like this of just some random thing that just kind of happens because they're college students and everything, you know? Yeah. And, and it would be like so on brand, so on like hipster brand for him to be screaming out the car like a Kansas tune. Right. Like that that just feels <laughs> on brand for him to be singing the hits of the 70s. Well, and it kind of fits his character because as we get to know him, like he wants to be a, a film composer. Yeah. Uh, you know, I love his little moment where he does the call out of all his his classic, you know, his film, his, you know, I can't remember the five movies that are the the tops for film scores, mm -hmm. um, which I just love. And then uh, also just this whole movie conversation that he kind of has uh, several times with Becca about, you know, Becca's not somebody who likes watching movies. She never makes it to the end. And then she finally watches Breakfast Club and gets it. And and then incorporates "Don't You Forget About Me" into that uh, that final performance of theirs, and which is and so, so that, great. <laughs> oh, it is. It Sorry. is great. And but it's the it's the blend. But it's like that the way that their relationship moves. And I actually felt like it was written with smarts. It didn't. It didn't need to be oversimplified. And you have that moment when she tries to come and, and apologize to him, and he's like, "You still don't get it." And and like they they have some some sense of this of, of real people in both of these roles and you know you don't get that final resolution until the end when she does sing that song and and she's finally able to kind of get through those walls and I, you know i think a lot of that obviously skylar is doing a great performance here Kay cannon though who is an incredible uh writer behind a lot of stuff like um 30 rock you know she did a lot of that sort of stuff working with tina fey uh, directed uh, blockers and um, is behind this. And, you know, she, she, I think her writing, it, you know, is a reason a lot of these moments and these characters work as well as they do. Yeah, I think so too. I think it is really uh, like she, she just really gets into the voice and heads of these characters, not just our principal characters, but, you know, I, I think 
Benji Applebaum, like like Ben Platt's portrayal of this. This is, and I don't know if you if you've gone through and watched the deleted scenes. There are many deleted scenes of Benji that were cut, uh, and all of those scenes make this movie, Dear Evan Hansen, the prequel. Like they just hammer home how sad one outsider could possibly be again and again and again. And if they had included all those, man, it would have been an incredibly rich part for Ben Platt to play. And we would have been devastated at the end of the movie. Like, it's just all these little, little paper cuts of of just sadness of him being left out, overtly left out again and again. But I do (laughs) think what we get out of him is a really lovely, like, kind of not quite so nuanced portrayal of somebody who is the outsider who just needs a group and he's trying everything he's trying star wars memorabilia he's trying close-up magic he's trying anything he can do and acapella is at the very top of that which is another you know back to our our point about outsiders and and making acapella cool that he starts as a vessel of somebody who loves acapella is another example of like needing to win us over as the audience because he, he's already an outsider. We see him as a supreme outsider, uh, bringing all the toys to college. Like that's not cool. And he loves this thing. Therefore, this thing can't be cool too. So I think he is another vector besides Becca at, at allowing us to make that transformation we talked about earlier. So I think he was great. I mean, he was fine. I didn't watch the deleted scenes. I don't think there's a whole lot of him. And so to that end, like you feel bad for the guy because he's kind of left out right out right at the beginning, even though he has this clear passion for it. And then it's just like, I don't know, as we were watching the film, suddenly we see that he's like working behind the scenes at one of the things. And and like people are still ignoring him. And I told my wife, I'm like, this is how somebody becomes a serial killer. Because yes. it's just like, yes. he's so clearly constantly ignored. Yeah. Um, and so, and, and I mean, you know, even the story between his roommate, Jesse, and him, it's, it, we don't get a lot. There's, there's just not a lot put there for us. And so by the time he's finally brought in to replace uh, Bumper, it's it's like, great, he finally gets his chance. I guess I didn't get as much out of him. I didn't know who Ben Platt was going into this, so I had no clue. It, like, it didn't mean anything to me that he was a character in the film or anything like that. And so, to me, it was just like, oh, the, the, the lonely uh, roommate who wants to sing finally gets to sing. Yay. Well, and I think, you know, you have a, that's a really good point. And I think I probably headcanoned this because I've seen the deleted scenes and I, like, there was much more of a story there. Well, like, and you knew who Ben Platt was yeah, before that's true. the movie. Um, yeah. But there are so many opportunities for him to have, like, you know, uh, he, he's, he's both proverbially and, or, or uh, metaphorically and literally getting sand kicked in his face in this movie. And there are so many more opportunities for him that actually define how hard he's willing to work to become a part of this in-group, that when he finally gets that that call to jump on stage, it is it feels earned. It feels like an earned twist. But I can totally see your point that as the movie is released, it, as it was released, you probably don't get enough to, to make that case. Yeah, there's really not a lot. And I mean, it's like, I should backtrack a little bit. For some reason, I thought he was doing stuff like Dear Evan Hansen before the movie came out. But no. that was actually after the that movie. Was after. Book of Mormon is what he was doing I guess it would have been right around the time the movie came out. Mm-hmm. 
that was 2012. But um, he, uh, so. I mean, clearly, like they found him because he has serious chops, and he, yeah, he oh, gets yeah, to I demonstrate mean, them just a little bit. There is one scene where he, uh, where he shows up at the riff off in the pool, and everybody, and then the trebles bumper comes up and kicks him out, says you're not allowed to be in the pool, you're not a treble, and he's standing on the drain, and he says, I just had to get one. One opportunity to hear myself in the sweet spot, and he sings really loud, and it reverberates over the pill, over the pool, and everything. Everybody kind of looks at him like, "Oh, wow!" That scene, both he sounds great, and two, that scene is the setup for you have a spot. Like bumpers out, and everybody else agreed. If you don't act weird, you can come sing with us. But you get it in the riff off when he's there. But that was cut. And it's such a short scene. I just I, I couldn't figure out why that was why they would do that, because I think that that's the setup to what is paid off later. Yeah, there's there's so little of him left in the film that as somebody who had no idea who he was before or after, like I, I wouldn't have even, you know, I, he's not somebody I followed. I, I mean, I've never seen Dear Evan Hansen, Book of Mormon. I haven't seen any of these shows that he's a part of. And so I I feel I, I think this may have been the only thing I've seen him in, believe it or not. Hmm. And so to that end, I'm like. Uh, you know, I, I, there's just not much here. And I just I, I it's I'm left feeling like, meh. Oh, well, yeah. Like, you know, give me more with the the Bellas. You know, they're they're really who I'm interested in. And, and the relationship between Bella or between Becca and Jesse uh, also like there is, you know, some I don't know, just the stuff with her at work. Like I found like there was interesting elements in other parts of the film that um, that I was more interested in than any of the drama around uh, Benji. Yes, and so speaking of of the the girls, uh, we should probably talk about them. Otherwise, you might think that we think that this movie is about the troublemakers. <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah. So, uh, you know, okay. What do you think of how the film starts? We start off. We're at the ICCA. Uh, regionals mm -hmm. and they we see I, I think we see the troublemakers perform first mm -hmm. they're great then we have the bellas come out and already the two judges who we are they're not judges. amazing um, commentators not judges, the commentators yeah right um uh john michael higgins and elizabeth banks yeah which i definitely want to you know, there's something to put a pain because I want to talk about them a little bit. But we have the Bellas come up and already the two commentators are completely bored. It it sounds like this is something that they've done the same song many a time and they start performing it. And as soon as Aubrey is given her chance to or her uh, solo, she projectile vomits a ridiculous quantity yeah. <laughs> across like the first three rows. Slapstick quantity. Let's just say I mean, it's it's it is it yeah. is ridiculous how much she vomits. I mean, it's it's funny, but it also I was like, I feel like they just went way too far suddenly, like you right do? out of the gate with this movie. <laughs> like, how, well, does so it, it plays for you? Because, I mean, I don't know. It was just it, it, I mean, it's funny. It's just like, my God, that was a lot of vomit. And it clearly right. so CG. It wasn't like maybe I wouldn't have no, had it as was much not, a problem. It if wasn't it was, CG. It wasn't CG. It was it was piped. It was a piped projectile. We're vomit. looking weird. She's doing it like into our face. Oh, yeah. I guess that scene they had to have done something. But you can watch the behind the scenes stuff and you see her piped and she's vomiting it on on the crowd. So some there, there must have been some augmentation done to it. But they did that scene and she is interviewed saying I was incredibly, incredibly nervous about uh, doing this because how do you vomit comedically on stage? Here's my take. Like. 
it's not unheard of to have somebody get so nervous that they vomit on stage. Like, that's not unheard of. And there's something going on with your voice and your lungs and your diaphragm and things like when you're nervous, things get triggered. And if you're not just right, you could throw up on stage. But when you just throw up on stage, it's gross. It's terrible and sad and pathetic (laughs) and you need to be taken care of. And it's terrible. It's not funny. Like, they had to amp it up. Like, the rest of this movie is just completely completely amped up in order to to set like the, that this is an alternate universe uh, that where gross, sad, gross happens, sad and pathetic doesn't. And and so I, I just I feel like I I really connect with the what the comedy that they were going for. You there. connect with the vomit. I connect with the vomit. There's it one gets, thing you love. It's on screen vomit. They level it up even more <laughs> in the rehearsal room when Hannah Mae Lee falls back in it and starts making vomit angels it, during yeah, their big climactic <laughs> fight where I. I can't, I can't, can't handle that. Like that is, that triggers so many like germ anxieties that it's, it's just very hard to watch, but that's the whole point, right? Like that's the point of, of the vomit and it, um, it's slapstick, slapstick. All right. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's fine. It's fine. I just, I, I, watching it again, I'm like, oh, I had forgotten about this vomit and how intense it was. Yeah. Right. It was it's it was intense. a lot. It was well, and it's very vomit. surprising because it's before the credits, right? It's before we open. And so it sets the stage for the past. It sets the stage for like the Bellas were already in trouble because their reputation was uh tradition, 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 tradition. It's really important to note that when you see both the 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 trebles and the bellas on stage together. What they're going for in the adaptation from the book is both of these groups were the Tufts Beelzebubs in the book. That the Beelzebubs pre nineteen ninety one were the Bellas, landing on tradition. They were doing only so- the same songs over and over, and they did them very very well. But they were like in the tradition of jazz, vocal, barbershop, those kinds of things. And after nineteen ninety one, they became the Troublemakers. So in that way, like. That we're we actually get to watch the transformation of this of this one group as told through these two groups on screen. And I think it's really great that we get to see that because every group goes through this. Every single group goes through this. Like you don't come out of the gate not at somewhere saying uh, we're we don't stray from tradition. We don't stray from tradition is such BS. Like we don't stray from tradition because we're boring, because we don't have any better ideas right now, because we don't have the talent to arrange the way we need to. Like it's it's such a weird combination of effects that go into making great music and you hear that a lot where somebody they succeed and so they're like well this clearly works let's stick with it yeah and that is another thing it's like that becomes quote tradition but really it's just because we did so great that first time and it'll it'll keep us going but it, it rarely does yeah we'll be able to recapture that feeling every time yeah uh so uh, that's the that's the vomit scene, and we get to see them doing. I saw the sign. I just want to say tropes. TVTropes.org mentions vomit five times, and these are the, <laughs> these are the tropes it has under misery builds character. <laughs> so that's the first one. It's also listed as a running gag. Sequel escalation. I don't. I haven't seen it, so I'll have to wait till we get to the next one, so we can talk about the how the projectile vomiting is escalated in the sequel. Okay. Stress vomiting. That is an is an uh, by itself a trope. Yeah. And last but not least, the vomit indiscretion shot. Uh, she does this twice, plus the video of the first frame. We don't we don't get the trope of the freeze frame bonus, but we do get the video clip replaying it as they watch it. Yes. So Yeah. I love the vomit. 
I, I love the vomit. Put it on a shirt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, only if it includes um, Lily doing the vomit angels. Yeah, I right. Love the vomit. Yeah, so bad. Well, and that is Anna De- Anna Camp, and uh, as Aubrey, who's doing the vomiting, and she is. I think she's lovely. It's really interesting the way they put these characters together, and I think probably casting Aubrey was hard because she is such an alpha in the group, and Becca is also kind of a, an alpha herself, right? And so being able to have these two characters that are both sympathetic. But but can like dance around this rank in the group with each other, the sort of social rank, I think, is is really interesting. And I think in that to that end, the, the casting was perfect. It's interesting that you say Aubrey was uh, was sympathetic because I, I feel like there is the way that it's set up. We have kind of like there's obviously the antagonist in general. It's kind of like the troublemakers. And largely it's, it feels like Bumper is kind of the antagonist. And then he suddenly disappears. So it's like it's an interesting way that they kind of crafted the antagonist of the film i'm not exactly sure who you would call the antagonist of the film at that point really yeah and it feels like it's aubrey like aubrey feels like the one who is designed to be the antagonist the one who will not let this group change it has to be we have to stick with tradition we cannot change and she really feels like she's not sympathetic like it's really hard to identify with her but then we do get the change like she actually does go through that change and learns to kind of let go and so it's interesting that in a film where becca also is the one who um i, I guess you could almost say um you know there it's it's an interesting script like who who's really changing a lot of people are changing a lot of in the script becca goes through her change but really it's like it's a different kind of change like she has to learn how to connect with people how to open herself up to doing something and, you know, using what she does well in the context like this group. Aubrey has to go through this change of like letting go of, of, you know, what they've been doing and open herself up to trying something new. And so it's interesting that you have these different um, shifts through the story. I, you know, I picked that line for the opening line, like, like, like my father says, if you're not here to win, get the hell out of Kuwait. Because I think those, like when she drops those kinds of things and the rest of the group looks at her like, wow, that, those are the signals that she, she has baggage coming to her sort of, uh, tyrannical sort of leadership of this group that we don't understand. And we don't necessarily need to understand. But I, for me, I hear those things and I, automatically get the sense that I I need to be to have some sympathy for her because her she's not just driven like a cartoon character right she's driven because she is in many ways broken she's broken from the first scene somebody who is not so driven to compete and to win does like uh, doesn't have the same level of stress that leads them to vomit on stage right that that way like there is there is a level of sort of sociopathy in her her competition that that is uh that is pretty dark and that comes from someplace and it's hidden in these little lines, these little teases from Kay Cannon that I think are are really great at giving Aubrey more texture, maybe than she even deserves in this movie, um, and certainly fodder to work off of in, in subsequent mu- movies, sort of. Uh, we'll see what you think. But, but I think that those are the lines that earn her the transition when she hands sort of effectively hands the pitch pipe to Becca. Um, yeah. But not at that point, <laughs> literally the pitch pipe because it's covered in vomit. Um, yeah. So yeah. I, I think that's I think that's great. I think Ann Camp plays that really, really well. 
Well, that's that's a hard thing for a writer to do when you have an antagonistic character like Aubrey, yeah. who is going to go through a change. You have to give them those moments. You have to write those 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 little. Uh, you know, nuggets in the dialogue and in the way that her character is crafted. So w- when she does go through that change, you feel like, okay, it's earned. I like, I, I, I could tell there was something more there. It's just now she's finally able to let go. And yeah, and that, that, that can be a hard thing to do because otherwise you have an antagonist who just makes a change and suddenly you're like, how, why is this? I don't buy that this person just went through this transformation. And so, yeah, so we needed that. We needed those bits that Kay had put into the script. Yeah, I think so, too. And now we get to add this sort of third element in the little leadership trio, which is Brittany Snow is Chloe, who is the co-leader of the Bellas and uh, sort of shares the dynamic between Aubrey and Becca. Uh, what do you think of Brittany Snow? And do you, when do you want to talk about the shower scene? <laughs> well, that's. That's a, that's a very funny scene, and it is a very interesting uh, way to kind of immediately put Becca uh, like off her guard, and in in a situation that's like you know forcing you to you have to sing for me or I'm not going to move, and we're both naked standing in the shower. Yeah. Like it plays a uh, very funny, very tense, um, and then then the fact that that guy kind of pops in at the end is just like it was it was very <laughs> funny, and it's interesting the way they kind of portray her character, and uh, they give her kind of these um, this uh, I don't know she's very sympathetic. I really like her as a character. She clearly sees some things that need to change and everything. Like I, I enjoy. Uh, the way that she's um, doing that and, and, and the challenge she has of going up against Aubrey. And so all of it works really well. I, I don't know how much of, I, of a fan I am of her like developing an intent, like a serious bass note when she goes through getting her nodes removed. Like I, I'm like, Oh, that's kind of silly. Um, I mean, it's fine, I guess it's, you know, I, that sets up one of the, uh, the Chekhov tropes, if I may, uh, real quick. Yeah, please. Chekhov's base that sets up the the Chekhov's gun for this at the very beginning with the commentators you have John talking about how no girl all girl acapella group can make it because they can't hit the bass notes and then of course uh, Chloe is able to hit the bass notes after that so there's there's our Chekhov's gun that you have the setup and payoff. Uh, I love it. I love that scene. I love that <laughs> song. I love uh, I, I love the dynamic between the two. I love how effortlessly it demonstrates Chloe's confidence and uh, that she calls it out. Yeah, I'm pretty proud of all this. Like, she's just fantastic uh, at it. And I don't know. Is there another trope for the shower audition, Andy? Is that does that is that a thing that exists on TV tropes? Because we get that in a number of places, right? It's a Glee thing. We get that again in Glee. I'm sure we have more than just these two of shower audition scenes uh, in movies and TV. I have never seen that happen in real life. I'm not saying it doesn't. This movie gets enough right that I'm willing to let that go, that somebody has actually seen the accidental audition in a shower. Uh, It's where people sing, so I guess it makes sense. But, you know, for me, it just worked in the movie. I've never seen it play out. The only other movie I can think of is Elf, where um, Zoe Deschanel's character is singing and and Will Ferrell hears her and joins in with one of the worst Christmas songs ever. But that's what they connect over. Uh, in 
on the TV Trope website, they do have it listed a few times. Uh, shower, duet bonding. Chloe sort of forces Becky into this by singing in the shower. Mm-hmm. Uh, girl on girl is hot. That yeah. is, that is the, I don't care for that as much. It's the trope. It is yep. the trope. The guy Chloe is with in the shower is gleefully grinning at Becca, having suggesting, have, heavily suggesting either this or a desire for a threesome. Yeah. Uh, either way, both girls are not having it. Third up, Ms. Fan Service. Becky and Gloa fit this to a T in the shower scene where both spend almost the entire scene naked and have a mini conversation about masturbation. Uh, you have the shoulder, sh- shoulders up nudity done to imply nudity in the women's shower. The shower scene, which is the infamous duet bonding shower of love. When Becky goes to take a shower, two pairs of feet belonging to a man and a woman can be seen in a shower stall. Uh, so we have that, uh, and then you, then you have the don't, take don't that. Don't Google shower of love, please. Don't ever do that. <laughs> and then you have take that, and this um, you know ties into Glee, the discovering in the shower scene. Uh, that's so that's where they do that. So those are the shower tropes listed in Pitch Perfect. So. Okay. All right. Well, uh, the scene uh, plays. The scene plays for me. Uh, and they sound great. And showers make people sound great, even in their in their own heads. So uh, I'm <laughs> I'm for it. Um, it's a it's a good way for them to discover. And of course, it leads us to the um, incredibly popular reveal of a song that nobody had really ever heard until this movie and made it famous, which is Cups, um, her Beck's uh, Becca's audition song. That was uh, it, it was. There's got to be a trope in there too, right? Which is the last minute audition trope. Like, oh, wait, there's one more trope. Oh, I'm sure. You know, is. because everybody was done with the with the group audition. And I should say group auditions. It's interesting that the the high notes are, uh, I think, agents of chaos in, in the Barden acapella universe. And the um, the other group we don't get very much of. But having a group audition is a sign of a really mature acapella community on campus, right? That everybody auditions for all the groups and then the groups get to pick. Um, that's not how a, gr- a campus with four groups would ever do these auditions. I think that's you'd have to have more groups. Yeah, it seemed weird to me because also it's like this is a a campus where I think there was only one co-ed group, right? Yeah. And so no, two. it's like the high have... notes were co-ed too. High notes and the Madonna group. Uh, oh, right, 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 co-ed. right. Okay. So so I guess in that case, but still it's just like it it, it seemed like if you're going to do something like this, the way that you would structure it. And again, this is just, you know, me being the realist about it, but you'd have all the men audition first and then all the women audition second. And then any acapella groups that are only looking for men would just be there for the first half. Any are there looking for the women would be there for the second half. And anyone who's co-ed would be there for the whole thing. Like it, it doesn't make sense for the, you know, the, the male and female only groups to have to listen to people that wouldn't fit into their group. The, the thing is, you are a uh, professional producer and uh, I would say expert in logistics and, and management of such things. And I think you forget our earlier point. I'd like to call back college kids are idiots and don't know how to do things yet. So, yeah, especially when it's being run by McLovin. It's like, why is he even here? He's not in any of the groups like I like that whole thing was strange. It's like I don't understand how this university is set up where he and this other person who don't sing are actually in charge of all the acapella groups. I I didn't get that. Well, other than it just being 
It is funny, fun. and McLovin is funny, and and his buddy is funny, and I, I think that's I think that's fine. Um, but I also think it goes to the, again back to acapella culture that there are people who love it so much and can't be in it themselves, and so they support it. And that's Ben Platt's character. That's these two guys running auditions, and the riff off because it's the buddy who runs the riff off. Like it, it's these people who who are peripheral to it, who are just fans, but don't have their don't have you know the skill or the natural ability to do it and so they have other ways to contribute and i think that's what they're trying to show that the community is bigger than just the people who sing sure yeah even even the people who can't sing find ways to be a part of. yeah exactly yeah exactly all right all right well let's talk about uh when i'm gone the song that uh is part of this whole cups thing yep uh which i'll tell you my daughter learned how to do the whole cup thing she taught me how to do the whole cup thing like it was a thing for kids to know how to do that if i didn't have coffee in this cup i would do it for you right now andy yeah yeah tick 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 what i found so interesting is that like the song when i'm gone i didn't know this it was like the carter family like ap carter wrote this and uh it was called when i'm gone in 1931 is when the song uh, was made and they had it like it was a, an Appalachian folk song and uh, it had been around for quite a while. And, and then it was this YouTube version that ended up playing. And I think a version of it with the whole cups thing that went viral on Reddit. That's what Anna Kendrick saw. Yeah. And uh, she kind of brought that originally she was going to, she was supposed to do, I'm a little teapot, which is, <laughs> which is funny, but also not that, clever of an idea and i think this ends up being something that's a lot more unique and obviously turned into a whole thing as as someone who has sat through auditions many a time i can tell you i'm a little teapot is a go-to song for auditions because people go kidding? into vapor lock i'm not kidding i'm not kidding that's people will sing i'm a little tea, teapot they'll sing the abcs they'll sing whatever because one of the things that groups, something. groups invariably ask is here's a song we want you to sing and then we'll do some exercises like pitch matching and and harmonizing improvisational harmonizing and then we'll say now sing us a shower song just a song you love and you love to sing in the shower and there are people who will go into complete vapor lock they won't know what song to bring and so they come with i'm a little teapot wow but if you thought maybe that person really does sing i'm a little teapot in the shower <laughs> I like to hope that they do, because if you really can't think of a song you sing in the shower, do you really want to join a group that is dedicated to singing naked in showers? I don't know. Well, I'll tell you something like this whole idea just really throws me because I'm a terrible person when it comes to lyrics. Mm -hmm. Like I can do tunes well, but with lyrics, like when they're doing this riff off, I'm like, how do they just have all of those songs casually sitting in the back of their head, ready to throw out? Like, I just like, I don't know. I could never, ever do that. When she breaks out, no diggity, right? Like that is epic that she gets through that entire verse and part of the chorus before Rebel Wilson joins in without just locking up on the lyrics that's not that's not me i need much more practice before something like that terrible i didn't even know what that song was until like they got going with it i'm just like i have no idea what she's doing but she's clearly doing something so yeah totally impressive yeah yep no it's i mean but i think that speaks to kind of just the 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 tone that they create with this film of the sort of people that make up this community and what they're doing. And when you see things like the riff off or the way that she's blending the songs, like I feel like they're creating an authentic world of, of collegiate acapella. And I really enjoy that. I think so too. I, and, and again, legit, like this is how acapella groups have fun together. Like this is how they 
they find joy. And did you do riff offs? Yeah, absolutely. Really? So, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a legit thing. It was no, we never really called it the riff up, but it was like, you know, when I was singing, what was popular? Like the blues travelers, like Hook, uh, and, um, uh, like those, those kinds of songs where if there are multiple groups that know the same set of songs, and you know this after you've sung together on stage, you take turns, like passing it around. So one group will start singing it, another group will pick up their version of it, and you, you just kind of go round robin. You pick up, you switch songs, like it's just how it, it's just how it evolves. So yeah, that's a, that's, that's not, that's not unbelievable. That's like a legit wow. cultural experience. We you, we never did it in a pool. We always did it around like a ping pong table with lots of beer. <laughs> that's so, awesome. Though. Fun. That's fun. Yeah. That's fun. The riff off. I thought the riff off was fantastic. The riff off is also something that, you know, when you watch it, you're like, wow, that is what I would love to have been a part of had we been able to practice that party. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like my memory yeah, of that yeah. party would have been amazing if I didn't wake up under a pickup truck. You know, like it—it's just it—it um, it would have been cool to have practiced. It's great. So, talking about some of the other characters in the film, like, do you feel like? I mean, we haven't mentioned Rebel Wilson, who plays Fat Amy. I want to talk about Rebel Wilson. Yeah, that she's adopted the name because she doesn't want people to call her that. It's like taking ownership, sort of thing. Uh, we have her. We have the the other ladies of the group, like Stacy and Cynthia and and Lily, who uh, is certainly an interesting one. Um, you also have like a very, I, I guess I'm not sure what to make of the roommate situation with Becca, other than to say, sometimes in college, you're paired with a roommate that you just don't end up clicking with. And it just, there's always this weird tension there. Yeah. How do you feel like all these other characters kind of are, are fleshed out in the story? Like, do you feel people are, are relatively put together well? Or Well, I think Rebel Wilson is is sort of the highlight character for me to, to call out just because she's such a comic foil, right? Like she is, she serves a very distinct purpose in the script. Everybody else, I think, is a little bit inter- interchangeable. Esther Dean, I think, is really great. And we have her, like, the, the mystery of is she a lesbian when she doesn't think it's actually a mystery. She thinks the mystery is that she's a gambling addict. I think that's really, that's really fun, but that's a beat, you know? I think Rebel Wilson Wilson plays a, a part in like outing the fact that there are some things about her that she knows people talk about and owning that stuff. And I think that's that's really great. And I say this before you've seen Pitch Perfect 2 and Pitch Perfect 3. In this movie, there is just <laughs> the right amount of Rebel Wilson. OK, and I'm just going to table it for now. I'm just going to table it. Um, because I think that that it is well balanced between our principal characters and the the feeling of what their group is and Rebel Wilson's part as a foil. And that's the then the movie ends and that's fine. And then we can talk about the other ones. I see. Mm-hmm. Interesting. This okay. is going to be a significant right. topic for the retake for members. Um, we're going to talk about this some more. OK, good, good. Yeah. Good to know we're setting right. this up. Um, everybody else for me, Hannah Mae Lee is another one that has a comic through line, which is that nobody can hear what she's saying. And she has the best lines. Like I ate my twin in the womb and I always keep a penny under my tongue. And, uh, do you want to see a dead body, uh, that she says to, to, uh, uh, Utkarsh Ambudkar, who I think is fantastic in this movie. He is a Broadway veteran. He was, he's done a bunch of stuff with Lin-Manuel Miranda. Uh, he plays Donald, uh, Bumper's right-hand man in this movie. And he's awesome awesome, awesome charisma on screen as a beatboxer. So love him. So Hannah Mae Lee, I think is great. 
she's the other one. I mean, I know she can sing. I don't know how well she beatboxes in real life. I don't know what was augmented about her her performance um, because I know that all of these all of the people in this movie can can sing. Um, I know that, you know, there was a lot of sort of ADR music stuff after the fact, especially for Britney Snow's Chloe. Her bass notes were not her own. Well, and I caught like Rebel Wilson a few times. Like it was clearly um, recorded after yeah, the fact. Definitely, there was all, everything was recorded after the fact. I don't think they did anything recorded live. Uh, especially you look at the Troublemakers doing again Whip It during the Rush Week thing. That was perfectly mixed. Uh, yeah, and yeah. So, and and I would I would want to call out uh, Ed Boyer, who is one of the he he and. And Deke Sharon are the legends of acapella mixing, arranging, mixing and mastering. I mean, Deke, Deke has has arranged 2000 songs and uh, he's been on uh, all of the major produ- name and acapella production, TV production or film. He's been involved in it. Um, and Ed Boyer is the is the arranger and mixer behind a lot of these things. And he is like the, the he's a hero. He is incredible at making these sound like much larger performances than they are. And uh, for the movie, I think that that really stands out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, Lily, I'm not I I struggle with the character of Lily a little bit. I mean, it's it's funny. It's kind of a weird character like she can you can never hear what she's saying. But at the same time, we're also like if that's the case, then I wanted to see her actually singing loudly or something in the audition. So at least I know okay, she talks quietly, but she can actually perform. Like I never had a sense of that. I'm like, why did they why did they take her? her? Yeah. If if you could never hear anything that comes out of her mouth. Like that that to me was like the strangest thing because it's not until the very last performance when suddenly she does this this like kicking things off with this beatbox moment where I'm like, "Oh, okay, she actually does have things come out of her mouth that people can hear." Like it was a weird it was a weird way to play that character. Yeah. And I I and that's something with a lot of these supporting characters. I feel like they end up getting written just to be kind of jokes like uh Stacy is just all about the sex all the time. And that, you know, the whole Cynthia and the lesbian angle, like that plays in with Stace even because there's that part where they're all running around or whatever. And you keep cutting back and seeing that, like, you know, now Cynthia's, you know, has her hands on Stacey's butt or whatever. It's like things like that. I'm like, I don't know. It just it felt like there was a lot of this stuff. And I know it's a comedy. and I know they're doing that. Sometimes it just felt like it was going it was a little too much. And that kind of ties into what, I, you know, the whole thing with the commentators. Like, I think that the two like Gail and John are hilarious the way that they play off each other, the way they say things. It feels very much like the sort of stuff you would have in like the Christopher Guest stuff that you know uh, John Michael Higgins has yeah. been in. Um, but at the same time, it also feels like sometimes it feels so written where they're not actually they're not actually like there's no sense of these two as characters. It's just they are here just to say funny lines. Like when he says something and she says, you are truly a misogynist or whatever. It's yeah, like right. it just I mean, it's funny because he's saying something misogynistic, but her like he doesn't respond to her. It's like they're here just to say lines and not actually anything other than that. And so it's funny and it's fun. Um, and I guess this is that place in the comedy where you just have to kind of acknowledge that it's it's here for us to just laugh at. We don't have to get more out of it. Yeah, but it, there right. there is that point where sometimes you wonder if you think about it too much. It's like, well, yeah. Probably don't. And it'll be another bookmark for the next two movies that we'll be talking about how this this pattern evolves. I, I think it's interesting that you you bring that up, that it sounds written, because I agree with you, first of all. But, 
you know how we've run into uh, lately, we've run into these pl- areas where um, the script will give options to lines, I think specifically in and around what we were talking about, Captain America, I think, on the Marvel Movie Minute. And there will be this place where it's like this line or that line. Right. Yes. The, okay. Right. An alternate line in the script. Make Correct. sure you answer when I ask you those questions, because I think I'm crazy and totally making that up. But it is real. Right. Because that's what this feels like. Like they had options, like a menu of lines, and they just went through and mix and matched those things. And I know that's not true because I know how exceptional both of these people are at improvisational comedy. It just, you're right. Why does it feel staged? It was funny the first time and it gets progressively less funny. I don't feel that way about Christopher Guest movies. Like they're funny. I think they're funny. Well, and some of it felt like, yeah, they gave these two the option to just like uh, just riff and like they were just okay. You say something and she'll reply. You say something and and they were just like going back and forth with with lines and it felt like okay now let's just pick the best ones and it, it did feel very improv. Like some you know some of it felt like okay they stuff that worked and some of it some of it didn't. But it, it does feel and I you know this is I, I guess it's kind of just a whole trope and I don't know where this came from the whole thing of the 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 witty commentators you know but it's I mean it's been a thing we talked about it in major league uh um, we talked about or we didn't talk about it but it certainly is a thing in stuff like dodgeball where you have the commentators who are really there to just kind of like be another level of of you know joking about what we're actually seeing would you say dodgeball does it better than this yeah but i also uh i'd have to watch it again because it's been probably as long ago i saw dodgeball as i originally had seen this okay so um but i remembered i rem- i feel like i remember the dodgeball like if you were to ask me before i had rewatched pitch perfect i don't know if i would have even remembered that these two were doing commentary um oh you know? that's interesting so I- that's interesting uh, yeah, no, I, I think this is a love letter for Elizabeth Banks. I mean, when she found the the book, she and her, her partner found the book and and like she wanted to be every bit a part of it and and goes on to direct the next one. So and I think she stays on as a, I think she's executive producer for all three. So yep, she's very, 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 very much attached to the to the franchise. Was she was she an acapella? Did, did she do acapella? Do you know? I want to say she probably did. I, I mean, I would just say, well, like, somebody who's I mean, so passionate about it, yeah. like, I wonder if she had actually been a, a singer. Let's just see. Is there any real... Did Elizabeth Banks sing a cappella version of Rachel Platten hit directed by Banks? So apparently she does sing. I don't know if she was in a cappella in college. Yeah. I don't see anything about her being a singer on her on her page. But that's... I, I don't know. Somebody who's so passionate about it, I would think, was either... Um, I mean, I, I mean, obviously, she's an actress, a performer. Often, the times they're do, already doing theater and sometimes singing on stage and everything. So it's entirely possible she has singing as a background and just loves it and just wanted to be, you know, wanted to further support it. So um, she didn't have to do a cappella, but I would just be curious. So okay, all right. Uh, anybody else you want to talk about uh, in the groups that stands out to you? No, no, I think you know it's a, I, I, it's a. You know, it's a good cast. It's interesting faces. Uh, it, they all fit. And I, I just enjoy this world. I think they, that uh, Jason Moore, director, crafted it well. Are you? Do you follow? My, I mean, Jason Moore hasn't directed much. I know he did some TV, like Dawson's Creek, uh, which I know you were a fan of. That sounds about um, right. Did right. you see his other movie that he did, Sisters? It was a Tina Fey, um, Amy Poehler 
movie? No. I totally missed it. Like I, that's where the two adult sisters, um, like their, how was it like their mom's going to kick them out of the house or sell the house or something. So they decided to have a big house party. And yeah, I, I, it looked bad. I didn't bother, but that's really kind of his other, um, largely the other thing. He's got a new movie coming out sometime this year called shotgun wedding. Is Adam divine in it? Uh, Jennifer Lopez and Josh Duhamel. Duhamel, however you Duhamel. say it. Duhamel? Um, he, it's, um, Darcy and Tom get their lovable, but very opinionated families for the ultimate destination wedding, just as the couple gets cold feet, but suddenly everyone's lives are in danger when the entire party is taken hostage. The couple must work together to save their loved ones if they don't end up killing each other first. Hmm. Oh, that sounds also like a real subject area for TV tropes. Change Marin. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see. It's going to be an Amazon. Yeah. Uh, prime movie. So I, I think just as we. We get to changing directions here. I think the uh, the the performances that are worth bookending that I really like in this movie are are you know the the Rebel Wilson uh, portrayal. I think Anna Kendrick is obviously great. I think the whole group environment is great. They rise to the occasion. They sing some fantastic numbers, especially after they make the switch and start really experimenting. And the finale number from both the groups is extraordinary. I mean, it, they're just really beautiful arrangements of awesome songs that build in just the right places and lead to a well-earned ovation. Like, it doesn't feel like a concert that is that is just sort of empty calories. I, it feels like great. If I saw this live, I would be floored. Um, so all of that is great. Uh, I, I think it's worth just noting before you watch Pitch Perfect 2 and 3, just remember how you feel about Adam Devine in this in this movie, who I think uh, as Bumper is uh, he's a solid uh, example of ego. Right. But he's also portrayed as very, very talented at what he does. Right. And and he is uh, he leads the group with, again, the the sort of Anna Camp authoritarian hand. Uh, but. He uh, but it's all because they're doing very well. So leverage doing very well. And then he abandons the group. Well, he doesn't abandon the franchise. So I'll be interested to hear what you think about Adam Devine uh, and Bumper as they come back in the next two movies. Anna Camp as Aubrey Posen is back too. interested to see what you think of what they do with her. It's spoiler weird. Uh, and then Rebel Wilson, of course, is what happens with Rebel Wilson in the next two movies? That's going to be really, really fun to see. So. Um, Hmm. I I overall uh, love this movie, like unironic, uh, non-guilty love for this movie because it ties so hard into my own sort of acapella history and culture. And uh, I had a, a blast, blast watching it again uh, every time I watch. I've seen it a number of times, so it's great. What's your favorite song perfor- performance in the film? Is it the Bella's final song? It's probably the the Bella's final song, but I, I also really, really like the um, Bright Lights, Bigger City magic mashup that the Trebles do at the end. I think it's a I think it's another really great arrangement. Both those arrangements are fantastic. Um, the Hullabahoo's do the final countdown over that last montage. That's them doing that performance, and it is their arrangement. Uh, and I think it sounds great. Um, but uh, really, it'd be the it'd be the final, the Bella's final. I think it's awesome the film kind of designs it for us yeah. to think so too i mean yeah. obviously we want them to win and so they need to have the best performance yeah and but the other there's one other scene that i just really love and that is the um um party in the usa on the bus which again it's a little moment but it's a moment that 
legit happens. You put a bunch of trope people. Trope. Yeah. Oh, you have the getting people together on a vehicle while they all sing together. (laughs) I was like, oh my god, this is like I just this is almost famous. There's another one where we have this uh, singing on a vehicle, singing on a vehicle. But it's but it is something about like uh, acapella people that it's a trope because it's real. Like every time. It is a trope because it's real. We are our own best trope. And and I yeah, I really yeah, loved it. True. I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. Yep. So, all right. All right. Well, we will be right back, but first, our credits. Don't let them take your purpose. I'm taking my sweet time. Feels right. The Next Reel is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson, music by Aaron Kalim, Oriole Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at d-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our Aka show. Because life is what you make it. Now I'm realizing that everything I face and set the stage, I know who I am. Aka awkward. <laughs> Is that something acapella people do? Not a like, little bit. No, no. <laughs> okay, you no. never said aka something. No, 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 no. And I, no, it's fine. It's Boy, fine. am I aka hungry. Funny for the movie and not funny in real life at all. Nobody says that. Nobody says that. All right, that. well, let's aqua move on. <laughs> I'm going to start. This is going to become a profane show very soon. Let's talk about the Aka Awards. Oh, my God. (laughs) Hard stare. Ah, This film had seven wins, 20 other nominations. At the Casting Society of America Awards, uh, it was uh, nominated for Outstanding Achievement in Casting for a Studio or Independent Feature Comedy, which lost to Moonrise Kingdom. I can understand that. And at the MTV Movie and TV Awards, uh, Rebel Wilson won Breakthrough Performance, and also the film won for the best musical moment, and it was when the Barden Bellas break outside of their comfort zones and step up their performance with an acapella cover of No Diggity. So, look at that. I just, you know, I was like, best musical moment. Is that something that's that common? Where are other great musical moments in films from 2012? Any guesses? <laughs> no. No. Musical moments, like use of score, or it has to be like this movie where they're performing music in the movie. I'll tell you, because clearly, yeah, I'm not, not going to have this. it. No, first, Les Mis, Anne Hathaway's live rendition of Fontaine's "I Dreamed a Dream" breathes beautiful new life into an old ballad. Magic Mike, uh, Magic Mike, and his hip thrusting contemporaries deliver a steaming rendition of "It's Raining Men." Silver Linings Playbook. Who knew emotional instability could result in killer dance moves as Pat and Tiffany, Bradley Cooper and Jennifer Lawrence, pull off a choreographed two-step that's equally part shameless and sultry. And last but not least, the perks of being a wallflower. With the slow swell of Come On Eileen bursting through the high school speakers, the wallflower's crew peels themselves off the sidelines and lets loose on the dance floor. Okay, that is a nice musical moment. I'm going to say that. Would you pick Pitch Perfect still? The oh, yeah, of, of no course. Dignity? Andy, who am I? Come on. It's always Pitch Perfect. Okay, just I I should have I should have guessed. I mean, Anne Hathaway is pretty good performance. Nah, you know, Lame is been there, done that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, best uh, female performance. Rebel Wilson was nominated for that as well, but lost to uh, Jennifer Lawrence in Silver Linings Playbook. And best WTF moment. 
from the film as Aubrey Camp gives a barf-tastic display of acapella angst that tips the scales of cinematic grossness. But lost to Django Unchained, in an excruciating <laughs> sequence, Fox's Django blasts servile head servant Stephen, played by Jackson, uh, Samuel L. Jackson, and sets the Candyland mansion ablaze with the strike of a match. Oh my God. Those, is this the only place that those two movies will actually go up against each other for something? That is bonkers. <laughs> that is a bug nuts comparison. I don't stand for it. Uh, the other WTF moments of the year, Flight, uh, Denzel Washington's Whip Whitaker rolls an inverted plane out of a 90-degree nosedive and saves the life lives of 96 passengers on board. Skyfall, mutilated and deformed after a botched suicide attempt, Bardem's villain twists his prosthetic mug to show the few teeth he has left in the gut-twisting moment filled with vindictive vengeance. And Ted, fuzzy, flirtatious, <laughs> and flagrantly inappropriate, Seth MacFarlane's Ted takes his co-worker crush one step too far. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, MTV. MTV. There you go. Well, how did it do at the box office? Please tell me it made money because it's awesome. Uh, well, Jason Moore's film cost only $17 million to make, which is just over $19 million in today's dollars. The movie opened on just over 300 screens September 28, 2012, opposite Hotel Transylvania, Looper, and Won't Back Down. It started in sixth place. The positive reactions led to the studio expanding it to 2,700 screens the following week, where it jumped up to third place. And it stayed in the top ten for seven weeks, except for one week where it fell out. But it remained popular, going on to earn $65.3 million domestically and $51 million internationally for a total gross of $100 130.3 million in today's dollars. That lands the film with an adjusted profit per finished minute of 993,000. Oh. Good start. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Nice work, Acapella. People <laughs> did come through to find love for Acapella just like Becca did. Just that like is Becca did. awesome. Just like she did. <laughs> uh, well, I love this movie. I could go on for longer, but I won't. Okay, well, we will be right back for our ratings. But first, here's the trailer for next week's movie, Pitch Perfect 2. We are coming to you live from the nation's capital, where the Barton University Bellas are performing for the President of the United States on his birthday. I came in like a <laughs> Oh, no. She has no underwear on. Oh, my God. On. We have a commando situation. She's turning. No. Brace yourself. She's coming. She's coming. <laughs> gave the president a birthday gift from down under. The Bellas are suspended. You're being replaced by the European champions. We are the sound machine. How are we going to compete with them? I'm not supposed to have any ideas. I'm the hot one. Um, I'm pretty sure I'm the hot one. If we win the world championships, will you reinstate us? If you win it. Barton Bellas, you are so tiny. We're going to kick your ass. Your team is like a, how do you say that? A, a heated mess. A mess where heat is applied to it. So what once was a little messy is now even messier. Never trust a big button, smiles at girl is always on. Here we go, yo. Here we go, yo. So what, so what, so what, so what, so scenario? Please just retire. Did your accents get thicker? Is that like an intimidation thing? Because World War II. Boom. When I look back on this, I won't remember performing and competing. I'm going to remember you weirdos. Me too. Me too. Me too. Guys, there's going to be some haters out there. 
They're going to look at us, Team USA, and be like, why is the most talented one Australian? These girls have broken down every single barrier in their path. Inspiration to girls all over the country who are too ugly to be cheerleaders. All right, Andy, letterboxed. Let me just tell you, I was let down by your reviews. I've already seen it and I don't care for it. It's not enough stars. <laughs> My review actually uh, said not enough stars and I gave it the appropriate amount of stars. I know, I know. which is fine. I, uh, I, I enjoy it. It's a fun film. I, I don't love it. I, I, I feel like there were so many tropes as I was watching it that I was kind of like, you know, I had to stop eye rolling as I went through it or I was going to uh, pass out from all the eye rolls that I was doing. That's an extraordinary statement. That's it. That, <laughs> okay, that you don't have I'm the stamina cheeky. to withstand no. your eye rolling. <laughs> your eye rolling must be legendary. Let's just say, sir. I was tired. I was tired. <laughs> No, it's fine. I mean, it's it's a fun film. I really enjoy it. I think that uh, Canon put together a, a, a nice group of characters that I think it makes sense to do sequels with. It seems like it'd be a fun group to follow as they kind of go through school and see what they do. Um, I, I, you know, I don't love it. I think that it builds to a great climax with the uh, that final performance and stuff. And it's but it's a it's something that I probably will return to more to listen to rather than to rewatch. So three and a half stars and a heart. I mean, and you know, three and a half is a great zone for me. Like the films that are in that three, three and a half star zone, I tend to really show them a lot more love for than even some films that I rate five stars for. So, you know, it still is a good rating. You shouldn't be disappointed. Yeah, I'm disappointed anyway. I think that it is, uh, this is one of those movies where if I have somebody in my house who has never seen it, it is an easy watch and they always end up liking it. Like, that's one of the hallmarks of a really fun movie is that it's a fun community movie. And uh, I I just, I, it's just really, really fun to, um, it's really fun to share. And so go for Pitch Perfect. I'm a go for Pitch Perfect five by five. Weird, <laughs> weird mashup. I'm Aka Go. Oh, oh my God. All right. Well, don't forget to visit uh, thenextreel.com slash letterboxed to get your ACA patron or ACA pro memberships. And it does work for ACA renewals as well. You just got peace out. How did this one happen? <laughs> That's just what happened. I peace out you. Uh, okay. Uh, well, this was fun. Finish the show because I'm actually done with you. Well, and we should just real quickly mention, uh, you know, you brought up, you know, we'll have more conversations about some of these things in retakes. Yeah. Um, we do our retake episode after the season or after the series is over, where we do kind of a recapping of the whole series and kind of discuss our overall thoughts of it. And then we also add them to our flick chart. And those are something that uh, it's a member bonus episode. So if you are interested in hearing those, we also do a monthly uh, monthly member bonus episodes. Uh, we are closing out our Cloverfield uh, franchise for September with the Cloverfield Paradox after having looked at 10 Cloverfield Lane last month and Cloverfield long time ago in our um, found footage series. Um, so members get those and we also do flick chart re-rankings. So there's all sorts of wonderful stuff that members get. Plus they get all their episodes early and they don't have all the ads through the episodes. So there's a lot of benefits to uh, to signing up to become a member. You can learn more about that at thenextreel.com slash membership. 
So what do you think about Pitch Perfect? We want to know. Hop into the Show Talk channel in our Discord server where we'll be talking about this movie this week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterbox giveth, Andy. As letterboxed, oh, sorry, as Aka letterboxed always doeth. Mm-mm. So you're going to continue on that. Aka, <laughs> yes. I have a half star from WKDP. W- WKRP? Does it even matter anymore? You're dead to me. <laughs> WKDP Issa gave it a half star who says, I thought I would like this movie for some reason, but I didn't realize it was about acapella singing in all caps. And now I want to gouge my ears out. It was so bad. <laughs> oh. oh, I know. I just think the funny part is you didn't realize it. What was it about the Universal logo that made you think it was about something other than acapella singing? You troll. <laughs> Well, I got I have a five star by Nia who just says this. Jesse would love Letterboxd. <laughs> That's true. Well, wonder, love you, you know, Skyler uh, has his you know, Skyler Aston has a great voice. I think he really does. And if you look up his profile and uh, his his account on Apple Music or Spotify, he's got uh, a whole bunch of singles in there. And you can tell he's trying to get uh, get a music career off. He's just mishandled because the stuff that he's singing is like bubblegum pop crap that's not very good. And I want him to sing something more substantive because he sounds much better in the movie than he does in his other stuff. So uh, Skylar Aston, keep singing. Keep singing. Thanks, Letterboxd. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15-plus years, Transistor has been, hands down, the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world... Go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>